college generally, I think, for teenagers. I mean, it's a source of a lot of excitement, but also of anxiety. I struggle with the concept that a year of college could cost 40, 50, 60, whatever, thousand dollars. I struggle because I'm trying to understand what do you get for that price. Welcome back to season three of MasterCard's Fortune Favors the Bold. I'm your host, Ashley C. Ford, and that's our guest, Katya Manon. This season, we're taking the big questions we all have but are often afraid to ask and talking about them. Last episode, we kicked off our season by asking the question, what is financial identity? We learned that there are so many pieces of our lives that make up the way we define ourselves financially. So now we're diving deeper into a big factor that can really shape our values about money, education. We're going to talk to Katya, a mom of a high school junior with all kinds of questions about her daughter's future education. Then, to answer her questions, we'll turn to New York Times journalist Paul Tuff, who spent the last six years speaking with teenagers around the country about applying for school. And Jillian Wynas, a senior lecturer in economics and education at University College London, about whether the UK has found a better system to pay for school. Because that's what we're after today. On today's episode, we're asking what do we get when we pay for school? So the way I'm currently paying for college is by financial aid and a large scholarship in school. Uh, I work. I have a part-time job on the weekends. Um, the 9-11 GI Bill, so the government helps pay for my college. And, uh, I also had to live with my uncle. Like the Dean's scholarship at my school. My parents are really well off. I have a combination of student loans and scholarships. I have a contract, so they pay for tuition and then I work with them for five years. Financial aid and then the rest I pay myself. Mine's a combination of scholarship, parent help, and loans. So basically anything that I can possibly get is how I pay for school. The reality is, when we start talking about college, the first thing we talk about is the price tag. How much are those four years of classes going to cost you? How are you going to pay for it? And is it worth it? Those college students we just heard from have one perspective on paying for school. They're in the throes of figuring out how they value their education and how they're going to pay for it. But for me, I'm years out of college, and I'm still thinking about student loans and the price of school. How has it shaped my career? Would I have done something different if I didn't need to think about paying back that money? And for our guest Katya, a parent, she has her own take on the value of education. She wants the best for her daughter, but wants to think critically about what she has to spend in order to make that happen. So tell me a little bit about your daughter. So Celia is in 11th grade. Junior. Oh, Junior. That's, a, that's a tough year, the junior year lot to think about in that year. Junior year is tough because it's when a lot of families in the U.S. start thinking about college. And there's a lot to consider. And Katya, like so many other people, is really wondering, how do you have the best college experience and find the best bang for your buck? I think, you know, college, at least for, I mean, for Celia, 
I think it's it's very exciting, but it's also very generally, I think, for, for, for teenagers. I mean, it's a source of a lot of excitement, but to a certain extent also of anxiety. Adding to that anxiety, Katya and Celia are not just trying to navigate the U.S. college system. They're trying to decide if the best fit for Celia is in the U.S., where they live now, or in Europe, where Celia grew up. Katya knows what college across Europe looks like, but the U.S. system has always seemed a little murkier. You know, my only reference was maybe like Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> like, and mine for a long time. I obviously grew up in Switzerland, and Switzerland is one of the countries in Europe where education is free. So I have a master's degree in international relations, and it cost my parents, tuition-wise, almost nothing. Katya knows that growing up with the expectation of free tuition shaped her values about education. When I was in university, they actually introduced a $500 a semester flat fee for everybody, which was met with outrageous, maybe like a little too strong of a statement, but like people did not think that that was automatically okay. Mm. I don't think people didn't think they can, you know, waitress or like work somewhere to make the 500. I think it's more really the concept that like education is a right and, you know, not a luxury. Celia is going to be applying to schools this fall. And that has Katya thinking about her own ideas about education. Even though Katya has a lot of friends going through this same application process with their kids, these aren't always the easiest questions to talk about. Do you have any friends who are also preparing to go through this college application process with their kids? Do they talk about the money part of it? I think it's it's a difficult discussion because I think everybody agrees that the costs are too high. However, I feel that particularly if you were born and raised in this country and if this country is what you know, people kind of feel they need to give that to their children. And they put like an enormous amount of pressure on themselves to offer that to their children. Because I think they see it as an investment too. You know, like you could buy your kid a guarantee that they would be able to support themselves and make a living wage, you know, more than a living wage. Like, how do you pass that up? I agree. Yeah, I totally understand that. I remember being told, like, you need to save for college. And that was like a really weird concept to have to start saving for college for Celia. Mm -hmm. Celia is also interested in applying to schools in the UK. So what makes that an appealing option for the two of you? So one thing Celia is pretty sure about is that she'd like to go to college in English. Mm-hmm. Okay, because otherwise, I mean, there are like other options, France, you know. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, so obviously the U.S., Canada, and then the U.K. being England, Scotland, and Ireland. And they come at like, a, I don't know, a quarter or fifth of the cost. It's not even close. It's, it's not close. So like, I mean, I think cost should not be the only uh, um, criteria, but life is also possible without, uh, you know, two hundred thousand dollar debt when you graduate. 
What factors are you considering when it comes to where Celia will apply? Like when you think about where you think Celia belongs, what does that look like? So when I think about it, I think about an environment that gives her the opportunity to explore a few things before she like settles on something, just because I think she has various interests. Right. And I think sometimes she, that, that, might create anxiety and I say you're like 16 years old like right. you know like <laughs> don't you know, even worry about don't it don't worry about it and I, I think it's completely fine but I'd I would want to find an environment where she can have that of course Celia's happiness is important but Katya knows that in order to find a school that's best for Celia they need to be thinking about their family's values and their finances as they get closer and closer to Celia's senior year, they realize that they have more and more questions, like which system is better for Katya and Celia, the UK or the US? I mean, a lot of the Europeans that we know that live in the US, some say, and I haven't made that decision, but some say to their children, it's either going to be a state school or you have to go abroad. Mm because I'm not, we're not going to put that money. And if they do choose to stick with the U.S. system, how do they decide where, out of the thousands of colleges across the country, Celia should apply? I mean, there's so many schools in this country. <laughs> yes. Like, how do you even go about uh, starting? And what should they be willing to pay? I struggle with the concept that a year of college could cost 40, 50, 60, whatever, thousand mm -hmm. dollars. I struggle because I'm trying to understand what do you get for that price? And how do they make sure that at the end of the day, they've made the right choice for Celia? There's the idea that somewhere in America, there's the college that exactly fits who you are. Yes. And you're going to meet exactly the people who are looking for the same fit. Yes. And I think that's part of like the what you're being sold. After the break, we'll turn to our experts to answer all of Katya's questions. My name is Alex Dangelo. I'm the Senior Vice President for Cybersecurity Coordination and Advocacy at MasterCard. The MasterCard Cybersecurity Talent Initiative is a fantastic new program. It allows individuals with undergraduate or advanced degree student debt to enter the program. The main key criteria is that you're pursuing a cybersecurity related degree. If you get accepted in the program, you'll go into two years at a federal agency with places like the CIA, FBI, the Department of Defense, followed by then two years at companies like MasterCard, Microsoft, Workday. Followed by that, you get up to $75,000 in student debt repaid. I think that this will be a model for public-private partnerships and moreover a model for the way in which government and companies can smartly begin to reduce the student debt issue that we have in this country to enable individuals coming out of school to not be riddled with student debt is a pretty remarkable statement that people who are good at what they do and who they are regardless of economic need should be empowered to do so. I think the unique aspect of a leading company like MasterCard is that exposure to cutting edge issues that are challenging and shaping our time. 
I believe in this mission set as a company. That's why I came to MasterCard. To learn more, email fftb at mastercard.com. Katya asked a lot of specific questions about Celia's future. But at the root of them all, she's really asking, what exactly are you getting when you pay for school? The simplest answer is an education. But it's way more complex than that, right? What does that education allow you to do? Will you be more successful if you go to one school versus another? And how do you make that decision? In order to answer Katya's questions about how to navigate the system, we first have to understand how that system works. It is this strange system that we have in the United States, and I can imagine it feels more strange for someone coming here from another country, where this product, a college education, which is this thing that you know, gives economic opportunity to young people, is in many ways like a consumer good. This is journalist Paul Tuff. In writing his book, The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us, Paul talked to teenagers across the country who are in the same position as Celia trying to figure out how to find the best school and find ways to pay for it. Each year, more students enroll in college across the country. But now colleges need a way to keep up. So they've had to hire more faculty, added more student services, and put more resources into making college campuses be the kind of places teenagers want to spend a lot of time. All of that costs serious money, which means serious tuition. And as tuition has gone up, government funding has gone down. In the U.S., students expect to pay thousands of dollars a year for college, even at state schools. And to compensate for that price tag, colleges are looking for more ways to make those tuitions feel reasonable. Now financial aid is much more often a recruiting tool. So there's this whole process done by these consultants in offices somewhere called financial aid optimization. And so more and more financial aid is given not to the students who need it the most, but to the students who those institutions want to attract, which often mean higher income students. Okay, let me break this down for you. In theory, the U.S. financial aid system isn't that complicated. There are government grants. Then there are loans that are issued either by the government or by private institutions. And then there are other nebulous forms of aid, merit scholarships, academic scholarships, athletic scholarships, the list goes on. Most of us think of all this financial aid as being about need. It's money to help pay for an education we otherwise couldn't afford. But the system we thought was helping has stopped working. Now, instead of giving money to students who really need it, a lot of schools are giving it to students who don't. But of course colleges won't tell you this, which leaves people like Katya with a lot of questions about why they're paying what they're paying. Every freshman at an institution is paying a different rate, and very few students and families can really understand what they're paying and why. Even if we don't understand technically where our education dollars are going, 
most of us have gotten used to a college calculation. How much am I willing to pay to sit in a room with a specific professor or be near professional connections or walk around that gorgeous Goodwill hunting campus? But Katya is not alone in wondering if that giant price tag is really worth it. If, like, your options are between, you know, a $20,000 college and a $40,000 college, like, you feel like, well, maybe I should pay for the more expensive one because that must be better. And sometimes that's true, but not always. And so I feel like families really need to think as rationally as possible, get as much information as possible, decide as practically as possible what the right amount to spend is, what the right options are. In the U.S., we're used to shopping around for the quote-unquote best education. And we're willing to find any way we can to pay for the best product offered to us. It's a fundamentally different mindset than the one Katya described growing up in Switzerland, where her higher education cost her nothing. That didn't just affect her finances. It's an ingrained part of her financial identity that now colors every conversation she has about college. And that's probably why Katya is questioning everything about the value of school. Her whole financial identity is being thrown for a loop. It's harder for her to feel like she's getting a good deal when she's paying for any college that's not free. I mean, people argue that higher education should be free, and they still argue that in the UK. But, you know, higher education can never be free. Someone always has to pay. This is Gillian Wynas, a senior lecturer in economics who has been tracking the price of college in the UK. In order to help Katya understand the value of a college education in the U.S., we decided to go across the pond to see how people think about education in the U.K. Up until 1997, school in the U.K. was free to students. But gradually, the government decided that wasn't working. And since 1998, tuition in the U.K. has steadily gone up. Today, it's about 9,000 pounds or nearly 12,000 U.S. dollars per year. And that sounds like a bummer, right? But Jillian says free education doesn't mean that everyone, regardless of your income, actually gets to go to college. Back in the 90s when the U.K. had free higher education, the government had to cap the number of students that could go to higher education because it was so expensive to have that kind of you know, free system. And the problem with that is that it tends to be people from poor backgrounds who lose out because they're the ones who typically don't get in when there's, you know, when there's limited supply. When the government introduced that £9,000 fee, a lot of people were worried that students from low-income backgrounds wouldn't be able to afford it. But that's not what happened. What we found was that enrollments continued to increase over the course of the increases in fees. So it didn't particularly seem to put people off from going to university. We also found that equity was maintained. This was so surprising to me. I think it would be difficult to convince a culture used to paying nothing for school that college is worth 9,000 pounds. I asked Jillian about this phenomenon, if the bottom line used to be that education is so valuable that you can't put a price on it, and then, all of a sudden, there is a price? 
How does that change how people in the UK think about school? Turns out, even with the new cost, people still thought college was worth it. And that might be in part because the government created a safety net to help people cover the cost, a loan system. I think if people were required to pay £9,000 per year up front without being able to get a loan, then I think we would have seen something quite different happen to enrolments and to equity. But the really great thing about our system is that the loans that you take out are income contingent. And that means that you only have to repay them after you're earning £25,000 per year. And then when you do pay back, you're only paying back 9% of your earnings above 25000 per year. In the U.S., some schools are trying to do something similar. There are income share programs that don't ask students to pay until they've graduated with a job. And there are schools gathering enough private funding to offer a select group of students a free education. But in the UK, this loan system is very different than in the US. It's standardized. It exists at every school. Everyone, no matter your income, is entitled to that loan in full. And on top of that, you only have to start paying those loans after you make £25,000 a year. Of course, you do accrue interest, but even that interest is capped. So you're not stuck with mounting debt that you can't ever pay off. Bottom line, you study first. You pay later when you really can. And that means when you're a 17-year-old choosing a school, you're not faced with a decision that will impact so many pieces of your financial identity for the rest of your life. Everything from who your friends are to what type of jobs you'll take to the way you'll think about your own college decision and if it was worth it. The process of trying to decide the right college to apply to, you know, it feels like being in a supermarket where you're in the cereal aisle and there are like a hundred different cereals and you can't tell them apart, right? And then the idea that there is one perfect cereal <laughs> or one perfect college out there for you, I think that's, that, that is a myth that I think pushes families to spend more than they should or than they need to on a college education. Whereas in reality, there are probably lots of different options and there are pros and cons to all of those options. One of the great things about the higher education system in the U.S. is that there are so many options, each promising different opportunities. And sometimes, even when there is a cold, hard price tag attached to college, it's hard to put a price on those opportunities. For example... Paul told me about a calculus professor, Yuri Treisman, who has dedicated his career to helping first-generation and students of color feel empowered. Freshman year calculus is a make-or-break point. It's the moment to prove that you can handle the more advanced math classes and eventually be considered for competitive STEM jobs after graduation. And a lot of them had not had the kind of preparation that they needed to succeed in calculus. But Yuri made it his job to not only help his students pass the most difficult class many of them had ever taken, but to believe that they were true mathematicians, just like him. It's college experiences like that, Paul says, that make him believe that, despite the flaws in the system, higher education can still be an engine of opportunity. 
And they had in, in that class this feeling that they were part of something bigger than themselves for their family, for their state, for their country, for their future. Uh, and that felt, that felt pretty great. Um, and it made me really believe that there is great potential for higher education to be what it was in the not-too-distant past, this great engine of social mobility in this country. It's difficult to justify paying any amount of money for something that is so inherently necessary to people's well-being. And for Katia, who is questioning what we get when we pay for college, there isn't a clear-cut answer. But after talking to Paul and Jillian, I wanted to make sure that Katia understood that it's okay to question the higher education system. That's what Paul and Jillian have been doing. They both are trying to understand each system in order to make it better. Because they both know that higher education, despite the price tag, does hold value. Katya. Yes. Hi, it's Ashley. It's so good to hear your voice again. How are you? I know Paul and Jillian's insights will help Katya think about Celia's choices in the U.S. and the U.K. So I thought I'd call up Katya and break it all down for her. So I kept thinking after we talked about the story you told me about people in Switzerland reacting strongly when there was suddenly a fee introduced for a semester. Jill, our U.K. expert, told me that a similar thing happened in the U.K., But then they found that those fees actually haven't affected enrollment. She said those fees have supported the education system in the U.K. so that there is enough money in the school systems for more people to be able to go to school. And it honestly made me realize paying a fee isn't always a bad thing. (laughs) Does framing it that way make you think differently about spending your quote unquote education dollars in the U.K. versus the U.S.? What she says makes complete sense to me. Like, as much as people want education to be free, I don't even know if it's realistic for it to be completely free. Right. I'm not opposed to the idea that that it should cost something, because I think in general, people value more something that costs something. I'm surprised that it didn't affect involvement. I'm happy that, like, her research shows that it doesn't. Uh, But I definitely... I I definitely understand that it can and maybe even it should cost something. The question is only how much. Um, I also know that you, like so many parents, are trying to navigate the financial aid system in the U.S. You are definitely not alone in that process because the system is intentionally confusing. Paul told us that it's actually set up so that no two students are paying the same price. In the U.K., that's not the case. No one pays more than 9,000 pounds. I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but something that really struck me about the U.S. financial aid system is that financial aid is currently more of a recruitment tool, especially for those private colleges with really high tuitions. And so you end up having a system where students who don't need financial aid get it to attract them to a school where they'll practically end up paying the full tuition. So it's important to think about what you're being offered versus the total of what you're asked to pay. So, first, did you know that financial aid was being used in this way? Because I didn't. No. No. I had no, like, 
I, that's a complete surprise. I mean, that's a complete surprise to me. Knowing what you know now, how does this affect the way you think about financial aid in the United States? I'm a little shocked about the no two people pay the same price in the mm-hmm. in the US. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. But I think the bottom line, the way I think and the way I was raised and the way I was lucky enough to be able to go through life is that ultimately I want I want my children to have as little debt as possible when right. they graduate. Well, the biggest thing I kept thinking about from our conversation was how to find the best fit for Celia. That's a nice thought. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Paul pointed out that perfect fit is a myth, but he really emphasized that there isn't just one school where Celia will be able to learn and make nice friends and try new things and afterwards find a good job. Is that a relief for you to hear someone else say that? Definitely. Like, definitely. It's easy to get caught up and to feel, oh, my God, like, we're not going to find it. Or maybe there is not the right college. Or, like, maybe you don't have enough money. So it's actually really nice to hear that there are many schools that would be a right fit for Celia, where she can grow up to be the person she wants to be. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to hear where Celia ends up. I can't tell you how excited I am. Like, this I is... promise. I promise I'll keep you posted. A lot of how we think about education is shaped way before we ever receive a tuition bill. From the start, our financial identity affects the way we think about education and the way we talk about it. There are a lot of feelings wrapped up in higher education, and I get it. Deciding whether college is worth it is a lot of pressure. Student debt can be shameful. But even if we do eventually find some perfect way to pay for school, all of our individual ideas about money will still affect the schools we choose or don't choose and the ways we decide to use our education later. And that's why we have to keep having these conversations about our values and our goals. It's a reminder that we're not alone. Everyone has big financial questions, and I'm determined to keep talking through them all. Ashley C. Ford, I'm so glad you're back. Your voice is like butter. Anyway, my question is, how do I teach my child good money habits? How do I get my friends to pay me back? Am I making less than my coworkers? I'm wondering if I can afford... What's the most environmentally conscious way to get to work? Should I apply to grad school? Hey, Ashley. Hey, Ashley. I'm I'm wondering how do I afford my parents? Hi, Ashley. This is Shana. I have a question for you. How can my city be more inclusive? That's next time on Fortune Favors the Bold. Fortune Favors the Bold is a podcast from MasterCard and Pineapple Street Studios. It's hosted and produced by me, Ashley C. Ford. Our MasterCard executive producers are Marcy Cohen and Brooke Capsuroni. MasterCard editorial direction by Arsalan Danish and production by Rebecca Abraham. Our MasterCard mid-roll producer is Mira Belgrade. Our theme song is by Bobby Lord. Tell us what you thought of the show. Find us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And tell your friends about the show, too. I'm Ashley C. Ford, 
Fortune Favors the Bold will be back next week.